0: past
1: present future live in-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music from osiris media this is past present future live i'm your host rjb This week, we bring you an interview with Jessica Dobson of Deep Sea Diver. Jessica grew up around California's indie rock scene and got signed to Atlantic at age 19. She played with Beck, The Shins, and many other bands. We talked about what she learned from Beck and James Mercer of The Shins before she struck out on her own and created Deep Sea Diver. Her great guitar playing, which was always her calling card with all these bands, became even more of a focus with Deep Sea Diver. Her most recent album, Impossible Weight, came out in October and features Sharon Van Etten on the title track. Jessica produced this record, and we talked about the difference between playing and producing, what she wanted to communicate through her records, and the evolution of her guitar playing. After the interview, you can hear Jessica performing Impossible Weight, Keep It Moving, and Wearing Thin. And there's a Spotify playlist for this episode in the show notes. Before we get into the show, a quick word from our sponsors. I want to mention Sunset Lake CBD again. I've told you guys before, I use their products every day, including their gummies, their tinctures, and their delicious dark roast CBD coffee. It gives me a little bit of calm and relaxation throughout the day. You can get 15% off your first order when you go to sunsetlakecbd.com and enter the promo code PPFL15. All right, now we're going to get into this interview with Jessica Dobson. All right, I'm here with Jessica Dobson. Hi, Jessica.
2: Hello.
1: Thank you for joining us. I know you are now kind of deep in the promotion of your new album, Impossible Weight, which came out on October 16th, and we appreciate you taking the time in, in between all that stuff.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Um, We want to talk about the new album and and all kinds of other things that you're up to because there's some cool stuff actually that's happened over the past few months that I read about. But at first, I'm obligated to go back to the beginning and ask you a question that I ask everyone, which is, what's your earliest musical memory?
0: My earliest musical memory is being in like a 1984 pale blue Mercedes with black leather seats, singing to my mom used to listen to like a lot of oldie stations. I can't remember the song. I just remember being in my car seat in the very back. And it was like definitely an oldie station. But there was a song that came on that didn't have any harmonies to it. And I started singing a harmony. And my mom turned around and was like, what? Like, <laughs> how? Because like, I had heard the song enough times to know the lyrics. I think I was two and a half, maybe. And she was like, oh, okay, this kid's musical. Like wow. I was harmonizing without being taught how to harmonize. I guess I was a, a baby harmonizer. That's one of like my favorite things to work on like in music now and with like hearing different voicings. And and so, yeah, that's kind of fun that that I guess was an ingrained thing in, in my little baby body.
1: That's really cool. And did that story kind of like stay as part of the family lore?
0: I've heard my mom say that story a few times and I was like a little mischief maker too. So there's a lot of like those stories, but I remember that like her being surprised.
1: What was the musical environment like in your house growing up? Was there a lot of music around? Were your parents musical?
0: Yeah, my mom and dad sang uh, in the church choir. And they put a lot of emphasis on the choir and the orchestra and really beautiful hymnal arrangements of these things. And so I kind of grew up around pipe organs and just like, yeah, around that scene. And my dad played a guitar. I, I learned how to play guitar on his 12th string Takamini from the 70s. My mom played a little bit of piano, so they kind of dabbled in instruments, but they were more vocalists.
1: Was that in California?
0: Yeah, Southern California, in Orange County.
1: It sounds like music and the church itself was important for you growing up. Was there a point where musically you like diverged from that and started discovering your own stuff? Is there anything that you remember where you like discovered something outside of your parents' influence and were like, "Whoa, this is crazy"?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, As much as I loved a lot of those classic hymns and arrangements and things like that. I was never really into the Christian scene of music. I knew about it, but like I had enough like older cousins who got me into sweet music at a young age, you know, and I listened to like, for some reason, soundtracks were pretty influential on me when I was a kid in elementary and junior high. There was Romeo and Juliet, Clueless, Scream soundtrack. They had a lot of really sweet bands on these soundtracks. And so my parents definitely didn't shelter me. I grew up around a lot of different kinds of music.
1: Did you do any singing or performance either in the church or outside of church growing up?
0: Yeah, I was in the little like musicals that they had. And I like knew from a young age too that I just like loved performing. Anything that had where I could like sing a solo or harmonize with other people, things like that. And I was always trying to start bands with my neighbors in our garage, little punk bands and like that and writing music. As soon as I knew that I could write music, I started.
1: When did you start playing instruments? Was the guitar first? Uh, my mom
0: put me piano, I think at six or seven latest. And then guitar, taught myself how to play that at like 11. And then drums and bass and getting into synthesizers. I played clarinet for a hot second and a little bit of woodwinds there. But uh, I really wanted to play cello or violin or something. I Actually, that's kind of a goal is to pick one of those things up in the next 10 years I will absolutely suck at that when I pick it up and I'm looking forward to that, that like kid, like feeling of like, I don't know how to play this thing, but I'm going to figure
1: it out. So like in high school, did you just play music as much as you could?
0: Yeah. I didn't really love being at school. I mean, like I tried to be friends with everybody, but I just like did not really enjoy my high school experience that much. And so I was constantly playing music, writing songs, trying to get involved in like at that time, the only places that I could play really were like coffee houses and, you know, open mic kind of things. And so I would go to all of those and meet other people.
1: Did you know you wanted to be a musician at that point?
0: Yeah, I knew since I started playing piano. You know, when you're when you're first learning piano, they have these like little books and these stripped down versions of like a waltz, like a Scott Joplin waltz or ragtime or whatever. They teach you the beginner's version of it. I was always trying to be like, okay, now that I've learned the song... I wonder if I could copy what I just heard, but write my own version of it. <laughs> yeah, just like trying to emulate. And that's how you learn how to write. You're just copying and like putting your own voice to it. I never saw myself doing anything different than being a musician and playing with bands, writing my own music.
1: Do you remember like what it looked like to you at that point? I don't know when you were a teenager, like what, what that music career looked like. Does it Did it look to you then what it looks like now? <laughs>
0: Um, I guess not too different. It's funny because I always love like my relatives who don't know that much about the music scene. They assume they kind of like put you in a category of, like, oh, you're going to be you're going to be a musician. You should audition for American Idol.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: Wow. <laughs> Can it be any different than what I do? No, no, <laughs> like uh, shade to anyone that auditions for that show. But um, it's funny, like people, how they perceive what your career will then be if you choose to be a quote unquote musician or singer or in a band or whatever. I think like kind of growing up so close to LA, it was like a normal thing to be in bands and, and go to shows. It was just like, oh yeah, that's what I want to do. Who knows if I'll make any money, but we've always been able to make ends meet. You know, musicians are the scrappiest people on the planet. <laughs> it's like, I think musicians are constantly having to reframe what they consider to be a sustainable career. And what that word career means, you know, it's just always in flux unless, you know, you have a super hot hit record and you're set for life or something like that.
1: So you got signed to Atlantic at 19 is is what I have read. That must have felt a little bit like you were getting some sort of huge break at the time. What was that like at that age going through something like that?
0: Mm, yeah, kind of a whirlwind. Like at the time I was making music with um, my friend Richard Swift, who's since passed and Eli and Frank Lenz, we all hung out at this place called The Compound. That's where they lived uh, in adjacent yards or whatever. And they were responsible for like, I feel like honing in at the time. I was like a solo artist and just like helping me hone in some demos, which then became like a self-release, like first album of mine. And then mm-hmm. those got pitched to um, a bunch of major labels. And then everything just happened really fast. Like... know i got a new manager and then all of a sudden playing showcases and it's like oh okay like and i i didn't have like a mentor anybody at the time like kind of being like hey maybe that situation isn't the greatest like Hmm. don't take that money or don't do this thing like just be patient and do your thing like that's like what i tell like every new band starting out is just like don't even worry about the business side just like play a bunch of shows invite your friends if it sticks, they'll tell their friends, and it will become organic. And like, don't sign the first thing that comes your way. And we didn't. It's, I mean, you know, I had like a couple of offers, and I tried to be scrupulous, but how scrupulous can you be at nineteen? You know.
1: Well, it sounds like you were around people who who knew the industry at least. It wasn't like you were coming from Idaho and to LA, and you were like yeah. brand new. But but it it still must be so overwhelming.
0: Yeah, know it was crazy. I think it was like oh okay so this is like affirmation that you know these songs are good and i didn't know too much about the major label versus indie world and yeah it was just a learning process like you know in the end i got off it with making two records and never got released one for good reason because i hated it the second one it just it it then became an ep for deep sea diver which is cool so it was a process that then led off you know to the next chapter of my life
1: yeah and i've listened to it it's good i like that ep I think it's pretty interesting and it's got like kind of a raw sound, which is cool. What was Richard Swift like? I've talked to and heard a lot of musicians talk about him and I don't know that much about him personally, but I feel like he influenced a ton of people in the indie scene and, and beyond.
0: He did. when I first saw him play, it was at this place called Detroit Bar and he was playing with Eli and Frank. At the time, I was listening to different things like Elliot Smith, Rufus Wainwright, kind of the Largo or Hotel Cafe scene in Los Angeles, and uh, Amy Mann, you know, whatever. There's like these really warm records that harken back to, you know, a lot of 60s music. I was really fascinated by his songs and the way his band played. And he was such a hilarious human being. I had like... like a very like amazing sense of humor that could also be pretty biting too, which I loved. Yeah. I don't know. Like I was so young when I first met that crew and they took me under their wing and I learned a lot about songwriting arrangement from listening to his music. Like the novelist was such a sweet record that you're like, how the hell did he make this? And I'm pretty sure he made it like with very minimal gear. Like I- I've learned how to be a minimalist just watching him mic stuff. Like uh, this microphone that I'm talking into right now, the Shure SM7, like. He would just do that one mic on drums sometimes. The right placement sounds awesome, you know, because drums are one of the hardest things to engineer on a record. You start adding 10, 15 mics and everything gets out of phase and like, but he was really good at using the resources around him and making any instrument come alive and sound completely unique. He turned me on to that band Broadcast. There's a lot of like sounds like bedroom messing around with synthesizers, recordings, and Anything he would add on the songs that we were recording, I was just fascinated by and I wanted to, I would buy the gear that he had because, you know, it's like I was so young and I didn't know like what synthesizers to get. So I got the ones he had, um, but he was a very, very fun person to be around in terms of like wanting to create and, and get into his mind.
1: When you read your bio, there's like, you know, you got signed and then you made the EP and then you played with like all these bands. Can you help me understand the kind of like experiences you went through with the Shins and playing with Beck and playing with Spoon and playing with others? Was that happening all at once or or were those like different experiences?
0: They were a similar timeline, but different experiences. Because basically around the time that I was getting off of Atlantic Records, I decided to take a break just for my own music because I was so just bummed by the whole, the whole situation. of just like, I made all this music, nothing came from it. Got nothing to show, you know, just like, it felt like at the time, like it's over. And uh, I think I was 22 or 23. When, and then it was almost by accident that I started playing as a touring musician in other bands because I had kind of fell into the situation auditioning for Beck because my friend was the musical director and I just did it for fun. Couldn't believe I actually got the gig. That kind of set off this different trajectory of me playing with other bands. Um, the musician world, especially in LA, is very small, and in LA and New York. And and so once I did that, I think the IAS had heard about me through Beck stuff. Ended up filling in for my friend Dave Potho on bass and guitar for Acoustic and synth, some synth stuff for like a couple months while he was having a kid. So that happened in like 2010, and then. Beck stuff was like 2008 and then 2010. And then the Shins stuff happened in 2012. And that's when I got to reunite with Swift and some other friends that I had played with in the past. And it was really awesome. But kind of like through playing with Beck, doing some yeah, yeah stuff, Spoon stuff, same thing. It was around the same time of just like, they were like, they would just call and be like, hey, we're playing the show. You're in town. want to come here, play the baritone guitar? Just it was fun. It was like a lot of cool collaboration stuff. <laughs> and In 2011 is when we started recording our first record for Deep Sea Diver, History Speaks. So it's not like I just like took a break from 2006 on. I was doing stuff and playing in LA and trying to kind of like regain my footing and my understanding of what it was that I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. But it was, you know, in the middle of also playing for other people and having a lot of fun doing it. And then released History Speaks the same year I was touring with the Shins. It was like almost like a shield of like, Maybe this record will never come out. I'll just release it at the same time that I'm about to go on tour. Almost like planning for its non-success, I guess, if I'm <laughs> brutally honest. I didn't expect it to do well. <laughs> and But it got us on the map up here in Seattle. And it did do well. And that was uh, pleasantly surprising to me because I'd had a pretty bad experience with Atlantic
2: stuff.
1: Yeah, sounds like it. And so playing with all these different bands, I mean, especially the Shins, because you kind of had to learn music from a lot of different people, which talking to you for a little while, it seems like that's fun for you. How do you maintain that balance and the chemistry between so many different acts while still kind of like focusing on your own stuff? Did that come naturally to you?
0: Yeah, I love being a sponge and like learning by osmosis. And, you know, like James Mercer's writing is vastly different than Beck's. I took little things from everybody and brought them back home. It's like from Karen, I learned how to be a better front person.
2: Mm-hmm. From Beck, mm-hmm.
0: I learned how to inhabit more sound effects in my guitar playing with James. He's such an insane arranger and songwriter and like goes to unexpected places in his songs. So, you know, grabbed little things from there and yeah, it it didn't feel hard to bring those things back with me.
1: There was a time where the Shins were like one of the bands i listen to the most just because their songs were so yeah, intricate but also familiar sounding but also unexpected. I mean, really fascinating stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and and probably an amazing learning experience for you. The album History Speaks came out in 2012 mm-hmm. and then you ended up splitting with the Shins in 2013. Yeah. It, to me and you know, i'm not a professional musician, but if i'm like out touring with a band and playing guitar and having this touring life like it seems cool was there like a moment when you were like i I should not do this anymore
0: it wasn't that i didn't want to do it it was that kind of like i said about i wasn't sure what was going to happen with history speaks
1: Mm -hmm.
0: put it out started getting radio play we started getting offers for tours we got a booking agent for the first time and all these things that were just yeah coming in unexpectedly and then i kept having to turn down tours and, and and i wanted to fulfill what I, you know, signed up for with the Shins, which was to tour through 2011, 2012 and 2030. Yeah. It's whatever years I signed up for. (laughs) Um, And it wasn't until the very end where there was only like a handful of like radio gigs left. Mm -hmm. And I was so like, I don't want to ask this, but I think he'll understand. I just asked James. So I was like, Mm -hmm. look, we got offered a few pretty big tours. I'd love to take them if I can. And he was like, dude, you have to. Like and he was like we'll figure it out. And my friend Mark Watchos was able to he was who had started playing in the band later, was able to take on my role for the last uh, few shows that I bowed. Wow, out that's awesome. That was really cool. James is awesome and super supportive. He just texted me the other day and been like, "I love your song, the new one for Impossible Weight. <laughs> super encouraging. I love him.
1: Yeah, That's really cool. It sounds like the scene, at least of people who were kind of in LA, like was pretty supportive and collaborative, which is really cool because. I feel like the perception of New York and LA is that it's like more competitive and a place like Nashville or New Orleans is more like collaborative. But it sounds like you had this really kind of tight knit community.
0: In LA, yeah, it's it's still a little bit cutthroat. Not like New York, but um, you know, you can find your scene anywhere. But uh it's very strange to be trying to do that right now when you can't really hang out with anybody, like yeah. or safely, I guess. Um so trying to figure out how to do that better in Seattle, everything, it's more of an online community. I found that during this time of like coronavirus stuff of just like, I've reached out to so many more people that I've been wanting to reach out to for a long time, but like through Instagram or Twitter or whatever, and just like connecting there just cause you know, it's hard to connect in person.
1: Let me ask you a question about History Speaks. What was different about that than like the Atlantic experience in terms of making music? Was it totally different or was it just a different time and the, the music worked differently?
0: I think it was different because I think the songwriting got sharper. And I think that I had those years under my belt of figuring out, like, okay, like this is the direction that I want to go. I wasn't floundering around as much and also I have to give credit to the person that was helping produce like the music we were making. It was, everything was to tape for that record. And when you record a tape, uh, it was at my friend Matt Wignall's studio and he engineered and produced that record. And he's like super old school punk dude of just like, he doesn't give a shit about like setting up proper pro tool sessions and making sure you have a thousand tracks to record you. He's just like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's go. Mm-hmm. And you don't have time to overthink anything. And just had like some rad old outboard gear. And like, it was just a different experience. And the other two things we did were more produced. And so everything mm-hmm. felt a little bit more urgent, a little more punk, a little more you're in the room with us. And I really enjoyed that.
1: Yeah, it turned out well. And, and like you said, it had a good good reception and you were able to keep kind of making music. And I want to ask about the difference between that album and the next one, um, Secrets, which came out in 2016, because there's a very keyboard heavy vibe on History Speaks and then much more guitar on the 2016 album. I noticed it right away, like the difference between the two albums. Um, was that a conscious thing?
0: Yes. A lot of people had asked me I think with the good intention of just like, hey, how come you don't like step out a little bit more boldly? You know, like I know you can play the ways I've seen you, whether it's Beck or Shins. Why don't you add that into your songs? And I think uh, I had kind of been like dancing around for a long time in the real traditional songwriting world. Kind of what I was talking about earlier, Elliot Smith and Amy Mann and all those things. And and so just like, yeah, but I love so many rock bands like Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, where it's just like the power and the energy of feedback and guitars and different tones you can get out of them. And like that speaking just as um, predominantly or heavily as your own lyrics or vocals. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Secrets was a more brooding energetic record.
1: We haven't really talked about your guitar playing. Can you talk about some of your influences? Cause I hear like Kevin Shields influences on, on this
0: for sure. He's definitely an influence on me. I mean, I play a jazz master. Uh, used, I think he used to play a super Reaver, whatever. Yeah. He's definitely had an influence on me. Um, Isn't anything. is was one of my favorite records.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um,
0: I love this as the go to. But
1: who else? Like, who are some of the other people who you really love in the guitar?
0: Yeah. Um, Blixa from the Bad Seeds mm-hmm. uh, and Birthday Party make a guitar sound like a strangled cat. Love that. <laughs> Feist is a huge influence on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, her playing reminds me of a lot of woven patterns, especially on like records like Metals, Doom, like kind of. There's like almost this like Tanara hypnotic vibe to it. Johnny Marr early on was an influence. Whoever the guitar player is from uh, Echo and the Bunnyman, so a lot of the Britpop stuff. Mm-hmm. Graham Foxen from Blur uh, okay. with a lot of effects. And things like that. John Greenwood, of course, goes without saying, and Tom York too had a lot of influence on my keyboard playing for sure. I'm trying to think of who is the big. Nels Klein. You know, it's hard to get away from that influence if you're going to play jazz master and use your tremolo arm. And mm-hmm. it sounds like short bursts of little birds flying in the air. It reminds me of when he uses the tremolo arm.
1: I, I like these descriptions.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was just talking to somebody. Like I usually have weird descriptions or colors that I yell out when I want someone to capture something you know like the sound of an elephant crossing the grass when it's raining like whatever that's a bad example but I I love to create pictures in people's brains of what something might sound like and then they can interpret it the way they want but yeah those are a lot of my influences
1: What was the experience like being, you know, on tour, playing your own music, you know, fronting a band versus like standing, I don't know, next to or behind Beck or whatever? I mean, what was that like?
0: Well, I think the performer spirit that's always been there loves that. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. whether it was next to somebody being a right hand person, lead guitar player or whatever, or my own, it's just thrilling either way. And of course, in the end, a bit more fulfilling when it's your own music Mm -hmm. and it's your baby and your project. As I started building this band and was getting a little farther away from my touring experience with others, I definitely had a newfound confidence, like I said, from gleaning all these little things from the people that I played with. And I still do that all the time. On every tour I go on, I try to take something away, you know, whether it's an element of surprise of what I do on stage or what my band does. Like, yeah, how I deliver something, like just trying to always inhabit uh, a different world when I'm on stage to enter into and to light up my mind and the people's minds that are there.
1: So Secrets came out in 2016 and the new album Impossible Weight is out now. Um, but you've talked about some kind of struggles in between. What was the feeling like after Secrets came out and, and how did you make it to the, the new album?
0: So when the Secrets touring cycle ended, ended on a super high note. Last show we played, it was like with Wilco um, at the Solid Sound Festival. So it was like such a rad way to end a tour. And I was really trying for this next record at the time to write much more quickly, to like not overthink, go in the studio right away, just see what happens. And... So we did that. We went into the studio right away with some song ideas and kind of in tandem, like I remember as I was heading down to California to do the session, I listened to this Feist podcast. She was on like CBC or something. She was like talking about how she because she released this record like every typically five years, like the Mm -hmm. space in between her records was much bigger than ours, which I was feeling self-conscious about, you know,
1: not having enough space in between or, or putting too much out there or needing to.
0: Yeah, totally. Like, why am I not more prolific? Mm-hmm. We always try, it doesn't work, like, or whatever. And there's another podcast for you the artist mm-hmm. process of getting over those critic hurdles. But I like started just feeling a wave of weird despair came over me that was like bigger than just music stuff. And I had was going to California, like, dreading recording, which I never happened to me. I Then as I was processing it realized it was like, okay, some depression is setting in and I need to deal with like a lot of big questions that I haven't dealt with in a long time. And I also heard that Feist podcast where she was talking about like, she stepped away after metals to like build like decks and work with wood and do something totally different than music. And she was asking herself, you know, does 40 something Leslie want to be doing the same thing that 16 year old Leslie set out to do so long ago? And what does that look like now? does it have to look the same? You know, just like really amazing questions. I think a lot of people are really scared to ask themselves because you get on this train and it's like, you know, if you stop it, it's either you feel embarrassment because you're like, it feels like failure. Like, Oh no, this is what I'm doing. Wait, I can't do that. Like how do people perceive me? Uh, Am I letting others down by not doing this thing that I set out to do? You know, it's scary. So yeah, I just had a lot to deal with and, those sessions did not turn out the way that I wanted. I mean, it was just kind of bound for disaster. And I started dealing with a lot of stuff. At the same time, Peter and I, my partner, he plays drums in the band. He we both quit smoking. That was its process in and of itself. Like just is the hardest thing I've ever done, but the most rewarding too. Mm -hmm. I got a lot more vocal register back in my voice after I
2: played
0: like it wasn't like I sounded like Tom Waits or anything like that. Uh, I can sing pretty high but I hadn't sung that high for a long time and so it was very fulfilling like once I got past that first year of just where that feeling of like I can't take a deep enough breath to feel okay it just I hated it yeah um and that was just having to learn new ways of dealing with anxiety you know because that was the go-to go outside and have a cigarette I didn't have that anymore so I started writing music without the pressure of going right back in the studio. We tried another arrangement with uh, someone else and we recorded in Seattle and those turned out okay. It was like, okay, this isn't these sound more like demos. But at the time we like played a show and we played some of these songs. Like we got asked at this random festival in Seattle. And we're like, why don't we play a bunch of these new songs? And we did, and a bunch of people came out to that festival to see us play. And it was really encouraging. And the response to the songs was so encouraging. And it's almost like I needed that reminder of like, I love playing shows and I love trying things out and like, not like I go into the studio with like, okay, these are the songs people responded to. These are the ones I didn't. I'm not like a complete people pleaser sort of like, that's how I choose the songs I'm going to report. But there is something to say about people you trust who come to your shows who are just like, man, there was really something there. And... It was encouraging and inspiring for us. And so it was at that point, I think this is like 2017, late 2017. Um, actually, it was summer of 2018 that I was like, okay, I think we have enough material. Let's book some studio time. Deadlines are artist's best friends. Let's book the studio time, pick a co-producer and just go for it. So that was the process between Secrets and Impossible Wit.
1: And do you think that some of the anxiety and, and the stuff you were describing was because of your career thus far? When you reflected on that, did it seem like you had put unfair expectations on yourself or you had, like, gotten to a point you didn't think you were going to get to? Like, was it music career related, I guess, is the question?
0: Yeah, like, you know, I've been doing this for a long time since I, you know, playing yeah. since I was in high school. I think I was really tired of trying to convince people that we were worthwhile to work with. It's just like, we have all these career highlights and we have a fan base. Why am I trying to convince all these business people?
1: So not on the fan side, not like you were trying to get fans. It was like more on the industry side.
0: Yeah. Like still dealing with a lot of gatekeeper bullshit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Frustration there. Sometimes you can lose sight of, or understanding of like what kind of person you want to be, like where, where you put your joy. Are you growing as a person? Like, I think yeah, you can especially lose that on tour because it's just like robotic rhythms. And, mm-hmm. and so what do you want to invest in, you know, personally? I'm not, I don't really like to talk too much about like the broadness of self-care, but like there is something to say about mindfulness and making sure that you're in tune, you know, with the rhythms you want to set for your life. And like, yeah, I think I hadn't really done that for a long time. So it was like, you know, for whatever reasons, one train wreck after the other internally.
1: It's a lot of like big questions, like you said that I think most people don't even ever ask you know mm-hmm. what really brings you joy in your life is like there's no time to think about that. you got to like go to work and take care of your kids and do whatever else i mean yeah it's it's scary but but a kind of a brave thing to be able to do it.
0: well, thank you. I hope that that can encourage some people to ask those questions, you know
1: yeah, for sure, and so this album, like we said, it came out on October sixteenth and you produced it.
0: Yeah, with uh, my dear friend Andy Park.
1: What was that like after being around so much music and having so many producers? I mean, what did you bring to it and what was the experience like?
0: It was really freeing. Like I've been producing deep sea ever stuff since the start, but this was the very first like I'm producing and I'm taking way more investment of like preparation for what really what world? Am I wanting to create? How am I going to get those sounds? Making sure I was on the same page with Andy about stuff of just like being very specific about the colors, the world, the environment, the highs, the lows, all these things. I'd been kind of living in a lot of like like Blake Mills recordings
2: with mm-hmm.
0: shakes and a lot of these like kind of hi-fi records that had feel. They didn't sound like pop straight to radio hi-fi. Like they, they were incredibly rich in tonality. And actually, that Vampire Weekend is one of those records too. Whatever, not the last one, but the second last one. Um,
1: Modern Vampires? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, totally. Yeah. Really, really rad uh, engineering on those records. And so I took a lot more responsibility for making sure I knew how to communicate those things well, of what I wanted to get. And then uh, sharpening the tip in every aspect of songwriting, the lyrics, the parts, uh, making sure that there was no excessiveness when not necessary in instrumentation and tracks and all those things. And it was really fun to make this record because, yeah, I felt like there was such a great partnership between Andy and I and wherever I lacked, he was right there just to be like, no, 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 that's great. Let's move on. You don't need to overthink that part or filling in the gaps where I couldn't envision something. And I felt really proud of the arrangements on this this record and how we were able to bring things alive instrumentationally. And so yeah, um, in the studio there was a newfound freedom, which felt really good.
1: Was it scary at all?
0: No, I wouldn't say so, because there was nothing there was nothing to lose. It was like mm. the only pressures were the ones we put on ourselves of like, uh, like I said I wanted a record out in twenty eighteen this is 2018 and we're making this record. We all know how long it, unless you're like self-releasing and dropping surprise date release, you know how long it takes to get a record out sometimes. Like, you know, for this one, it was done for almost a year before it came out. That was, you know, for different reasons of figuring out label stuff and whatever. Yeah, I think the nothing to lose thing is just like, we, you know, had self-released everything and it was just like, well, It's worked in the past. Like people have our backs and we can trust that. Like, and maybe they won't like this recording. And that's okay too. I was trying not to think about the future. I just wanted to inhabit that world.
1: Well, congratulations on getting it out there. That's exciting. During the pandemic, I just want to mention this you've been doing streams and you've built a following, of course. And the single that came out, Stop Pretending, was sort of the result of uh, some fan engagement. Ideas is, is what I understand. Can you tell us about how that came together in that experiment you guys did?
0: Yeah, I think I'll look fondly back on our stay home stems project for the rest of my <laughs> life. That's one of the things that Peter is really great at um in the band. Is just like he will throw out like a thousand ideas, and he doesn't care if he looks foolish doing it. And so we would started doing these live streams when the pan- pandemic first hit. In the very first week, he's like, "What if we like recorded something during the live stream?" And we said. Hey, like, so for example, during this first one, he's like, I'm going to record a drum beat. I pointed the camera at him. He did the drum beat and then looked back into the camera and said, okay, we're going to upload that to Dropbox. You can download it and make your own song. Submissions are due by the next live stream, which they were weekly. So they were due like Saturday at midnight or whatever for the next Sunday's live stream. So that first week we had like, I think 70 different submissions, all completely different songs off of this looped beat. And Around like the middle of the week, you know, before they were due, I had taken a stab at like writing my own thing to it. because I was like, I don't want to ask people to write a song and not actually do my own, you know?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And the first thing kind of just didn't work. I was like banging my head against the wall. I went on a walk, came back, and then those chords for Stop Pretending just came. And I basically just kept hitting record for the next 12 hours. And then it was just done, that song. And I mixed it the next day. And I've never, ever released... A deep sea diver song like that, where it was all done internally, like even the mastering, just like through a program, like mm-hmm. online, just like, yeah, I never dreamed of, of doing something like that without calling it like this is a lo fi demo, but like we were <laughs> as a single. And so, with the Stay Home Sims project, we continued it for the next, I think, eight weeks. Every week was different. Some weeks it would be me doing some omnicord part or an electronic beat one week was a charles bukowski spoken word poem read by me and people mm-hmm. scored music underneath it one week was i gave them the vocal track to stop pretending and said now write your own music underneath this so it was just wild like that first week just like you know you get the people that are not procrastinators they would turn the song the next day and we're just like
1: mm-hmm. oh god mm-hmm.
0: crazy <laughs> and then all the procrastinators would turn it in saturday
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Like school.
0: Like, yeah, totally. And I mean, just like there would be songs that sounded like super Tom York, Radiohead, Kid A, you know, arrangements over this 1B. Others would be like psych jazz things happen. It's just like exactly what you would expect from strangers who you've never met before collaborating with you. And getting to the chance to do whatever the hell they wanted. Like it was super cool. One sounded like uh tune Z with like a ton of different hmm. vocal harmonies and just the mm-hmm. beat or like Yeah, you never knew what you were gonna get. And so that was fun. I love hearing the ones that are like people that don't play music as a career who are just like were like, I've never done anything like this before, and they just recorded stuff into their phone or something mm-hmm. like that. Like, those are like precious.
1: So now that this album's out there, where are you channeling your creative energy and and what are you doing with your time when you're not, you know, talking about the new album?
0: (laughs) Mm, I really am feeling so like right now I'm in my basement. This is my home studio. We're redoing it right now. And I'm ready for that because we can't freaking tour. Nobody can. It's just devastating on so many levels for so many people. Yeah. (laughs) We're doing as much as we can to promote the record in as creative a way possible. And for some people that's playing a lot of live streams right now for others, it's connecting through zoom and doing these special shows or whatever. Like, I think for us, we're trying to find our way up what that looks like for us. Um, I, it's hard because I am still grieving, not being able to go on tour. It's just, that is, always been the best way to get your music out there and to connect with people. The live streams just only satiate a certain percentage of how that feels and to be honest sometimes they leave you feeling a little empty too. Like I think if you that's your only way of, you know, being able to play music, you're not in a room with people. We're trying to figure out what it looks like for us to do some like kind of these performance space things that we're going to put online but like to almost add in that same spirit of lot li- so a lot of these live streams they're not live they're pre-recorded and then they're put up on you know online or whatever
2: yeah yeah we'll
0: know that or if they don't it's, it's not a big deal you know? yeah. <laughs> but i kind of like the idea of maybe pre-taping some stuff and taking people to different places like you know we do a couple songs in a studio and then we switch over to like a live feed of just at least attempting to feel like we're with people mm-hmm. at the time and it's like this is special like This is happening right now. I don't know. Some people are doing drive-in things. We don't really have, I mean, I guess we do have a drive-in, but the weather is so shoddy here. You never know if it's going to rain. It's just, uh, but I'm ready to create again too. And to like add some new tools in my studio, whether it's some analog gear, new keyboards. I'm getting a new bass in the mail this week. That's fun. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. That's Um, fun. Yeah, I need I need that. I need to cocoon myself in the studio this fall because what else is there? You know.
1: Yeah, you're a badass guitarist and a, a badass musician. I'm just curious if you have had experiences or feel like your experience has been affected because you're a woman.
0: Yes, it has. Things are slowly changing. I think there's more camaraderie between females now too, and combating a lot of that misogyny and sexism and. Every female you talk to is going to tell you a million stories about that sound guy or the person in the studio who made him feel stupid. Mm-hmm. I mean, you only have to do a little bit of investigating to look at all the lineups of festivals to see, you know, just completely male-dominated yeah. realms. And I think that my aim has always been, as I've gotten more confident uh, as a person and a musician and someone in the studio is to demystify the process for other, especially younger females and to yeah extend like the aura and the vibe that I'm here for you. Cause sometimes, you know, even just saying that out loud, having other people hear that is like, it means a lot. Like I am a stronger person now because I have more female or female identifying friends in the music industry and we've got each other's backs and we can call a bullshit out when we see it. And so, Yeah. I'm I'm there for that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I guess yeah, like you said, you don't have to look very closely at things to figure out that it's still completely male-dominated. But I think even inside the music industry, like like most businesses in America, I guess it's just so it's so dominated.
0: Yeah, I'd like to see it go beyond a gesture, like in in the same way as you know, just like people f- filling quotas for whatever look they want to have for their business or their employees. It's just like. I'm, I want to see things genuinely go beyond those gestures and trying to fill spaces, but just like trusting that it's a beautiful thing to have different voices and different genders or whatever. Like, yeah. you know, yeah, <laughs> there's so many amazing female bands out there or artists like that aren't getting a chance.
1: You said um, earlier, like when you were, I don't know, 10 or 11, like you knew you wanted to be a musician and looking back now, what would you as that 11 year old think of you now in terms of what that music career has looked like?
0: I definitely would be like wildly fascinated because I think that 11 year old me could only see so far of like, yeah, I just, I'll have my guitar and I'll sing songs and I'll press record and I'll play music and tour a little bit. Like Um, I don't even think I thought about that at 11, like touring. It's just like, yeah, this is just what I'll do. And it'll make people happy or whatever. Like, cause I (laughs) love playing. That's what I would do. I'd go to junior high or elementary, bring my guitar and play songs. And people would be stoked to sing with me or whatever. And that, that like brought me alive so much, you know, I think I'd be fascinated by how much it has been such a source of energy for Lifting me up to of like dealing with the darkness, whatever, like painful moments in my life and talking about them poetically through song and lyrics. I don't know. I I don't think I would have ever imagined playing with all these other bands, especially, you know, Beck's an interesting one. Like I was learning his songs in fifth grade,
2: like, mm-hmm. you know,
0: like uh, I don't think I'd ever th- when I was driving down PCH listening to that first Shins record in like high school thinking like, oh, I'll play with this band someday, yeah. you know, there's yeah. a lot of surprises and those are just, you know, with other bands for my own career, I never dreamed I'd be able to, you know, end a tour playing Wilco's festival or whatever. Yeah. So many of these like beautiful highlights That you know have value to me and aren't everything. Everything passes, and you know, like it's not about just like trying to base your identity on these things that have happened to you because stuff is fleeting. And it's just like, yeah, where do you put your value? And I think like I am stoked to be in a feels like a more grounded place right now, at least. And amid sadness, you know, like loss of touring for the moment or whoever knows how long. But just trying to be stoked that we have this record. We decided to put it out and same aim from when I was 11. The aim being, I love making music that makes people feel something, whether that's their own sadness or their own joy more deeply and creating a new world because I was entering that world at age 11 and and up into now of like, that's how I love to see the world is with a little bit of fantastical perspective. Seeing something beyond me, a different realm,
1: well, thank you for sharing all this and, and congrats on getting this album out there. And thank hopefully you. we'll be hearing more new music from you soon.
0: Yeah, I hope so too. I'm going to get busy. I'm not going to like uh, promise myself anything. I'm just going to have fun creating this fall and see what comes out.
1: That's great. Well, um, everyone should stick around to hear a few tracks from Jessica. And thanks to you and to Deep Sea Diver. And um, we appreciate you joining us.
0: Oh, thanks so much for having me on
1: And now here's Jessica Dobson performing Impossible Weight, Keep It Moving, and Wearing Thin.
2: This is
0: the song that's the title track from our brand new record, and it's called Impossible Weight. This next song is off of our very first record called History Speaks, and this is Keep It Moving. This song is one of the oldest songs that I have for Deep Sea Diver. It showed up on the very first EP we released, and it's called Wearing Thin.
1: Thanks for joining us. Past, present, future live is hosted and produced by RJB. The executive producers are Adam Kaplan and Kirsten Cluthy. Production, editing, mixing, and original theme music by Brad Stratton. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Please visit osirispod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love.